Good morning. How you doing? I'm Ross. Let me add my welcome to Scott's. Glad that you are here with us this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Okay, that's where we're going to be. Yes, we're still in chapter 1. If you've been here the last four or five weeks, you know we've been in chapter 1 and we're still in chapter 1 and we'll be in chapter 1 next week and maybe the week after that, but it's all right, okay? At least I think it's all right. Maybe you don't think it's all right, but uh, that's where we are and we are going at uh, snail's pace so far, but uh, there are lots of wonderful things for us to glean from this letter that actually has five chapters. Um, but so far, we are where we are, right? Um, let me read for us, and you can follow along either on the screen or hopefully in a Bible right uh, in your hands there, um, verses 3 through 12, okay? Chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, we've uh, been in this uh, book for several weeks now as kind of our fall series, and uh, we started by looking at uh, verse 1, which we didn't give time to read this morning, but Peter addresses the readers and us as elect exiles. And we talked about that theme, as John even alluded to in some of our songs this morning, that we're exiles as believers in Jesus this isn't our ultimate home. Uh, God has prepared a home for us, but it is not this. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that there's something uh, better and more perfect awaiting us? And he begins that way because he wants them and he wants us to know that uh, you're going to need that perspective to face the trials that you face in this life, and particularly 
trials that you face as a believer, okay? So everybody faces trials. Uh, anyone that's breathing for long on this planet faces trials. Just a matter of how long you live, how many of those, and how intense those trials will be. But everybody faces trials. And, and the scriptures actually teach that, that believers face trials just as much and perhaps more, we'll talk about in a minute, uh, because we have chosen to follow Jesus. So if you're going to endure and you're going to persevere through trials, you need to know that, number one, you're loved. That's what elect means. You're chosen. You're elect by God. But you also need to know that, number two, this isn't your home. So don't expect everything to work out the way you want it to because you don't really run this home. It's not your home. God's in charge, uh, and the world is broken, but he's preparing a home for us that will run the way uh, he ultimately desires and the way we would wish in the future. Um, meanwhile, we have trials. And we looked uh, a couple weeks ago at verse 6 at the nature of those trials. If you want to look at verse 6 with me just by way of quick review here, it says in verse 6, in this you rejoice, meaning the salvation that we have in verses 3 through 5. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And we said that according to verse 6, trials are temporary, necessary, grievous, and various. But trials are here, right? And if we just collected all the different trials represented in this room, they would be of various types and kinds, various degrees of intensity. Um, but the scripture promises that they are temporary, that one day we won't have them. And uh, it also says that they are necessary Necessary in some sense, and that's what leads us from verse 6, the necessity of trials, to the verse that we're really going to focus on this morning, and that is verse 7, and that's kind of the difficult verse of this paragraph, okay? Verse 6 talks about the description of those trials, but verse 7 talks about what God's accomplishing, how God is using and working within those trials, okay? So I don't know about you, but uh, when I was in high school, you know, when you were, every sports team you were on, you had kind of a team t-shirt, and since I was a wrestler in high school, we wanted to have a tough t-shirt, right? So one year in high school, our wrestling t-shirt for the year on the back of it it read on the back of the shirt it had this line on it that said whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger you've heard that before whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger now that's kind of a line that a wrestler would want to have on the back of his shirt right and I just try to kill me and if you don't kill me you're just making me stronger I can do this. Well, there are worse slogans in the world than that one, you know. I've seen some bad ones. I've seen some bad t-shirts. I've seen some stupid bumper stickers. 
But whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And in fact, there's more than an ounce of truth in that slogan, I would say. But as we talk about trials and suffering in 1 Peter here, I think Peter wouldn't have that slogan, actually. I think if Peter were writing the t-shirt, Peter would write something like this. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you trust more. Well, maybe we could back up and say, it either makes you trust less or it makes you trust more, right? And though there is this sense of in the Christian life, God is transforming us and he's, he's, he's making us stronger. He wants to make us stronger. But what does he want to make us stronger in the sense of? He's not actually out to make us stronger in like our flesh, in our abilities. He's actually out to make us stronger in our faith. So it's, it's actually more correct to say he's actually making us stronger in our faith. He's not trying to make us independently strong, but he's out to make us dependently strong. Does that make sense? Make us strong on God. So last week, as we kind of went off the script last week, as we were talking about some tragedies happening within our community and uh, amongst some of us in our church family here, I took us to a place in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says that he was going through some, some stuff that was so tough that it made him despair even of life. But then, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, look this up later if you weren't here. But he says that these things happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. That we might not rely on ourselves, but upon God. And so, though we don't always know the why of the trials or the suffering or the things that we're going through, the one thing we can know is that in our trials and in our sufferings, one of the purposes, at least, that God has for us is that we not rely on ourselves, like, hey, I'm strong, I can do this, but actually the opposite, that we can say, actually, I'm pretty weak and I'm pretty dependent upon Jesus, right? Pretty dependent upon God. So everybody in this room this morning, I would imagine has a trial. If you don't have a trial this morning, guess what? There's probably one right around the corner, okay? But uh, we can say a lot of things about what we learn in trials, but just kind of gen- generally, here's some things that I would say that we all learn in trials universally, and that is um, we learn, first of all, that we have much less control than we think we do, right? Can't you say that kind of universally about trials? You go through a health trial, you go through a layoff at work, you go through a time of where your kids are rebelling or they walk away from the faith or you're in a really difficult place in your marriage, just kind of universally, one of the things that trials do universally is that they help us see that 
we have a lot less control than we thought, right? Another thing that, that trials show us is um, not only do we have less control than we thought, but we also have less power than we thought. We think about this particularly when it comes to our health, right? I mean, you can have all the money in the world. You can have um, connections. You can have the greatest doctors, but some things you, you just, you're without power. You're without control. And that's a, uh, that's a difficult, humanizing place to be, Right? As we look here in First uh, Peter at verse 7, what we're going to see in verse 7 is that trials also are not just showing us our weakness, showing us our lack of control and our, our lack of power over circumstances. They're also showing us that the trial is transforming us and testing us itself. That trials are tests that God uses to transform us. And that's actually kind of tough to accept, isn't it? That God's using these difficult things in our lives for a good outcome. I'd rather him not do that. Are you with me on that? I'd rather kind of get the change and get the transformation without the pain and without the trial but I have to preach verse 7 as well as verse 5 and 6. Okay, so look again with me at verse 7 where he talks about this. He says, You've been grieved by various trials, verse 6, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're tested through trials. So four things from this verse this morning, okay, about testing through trials. Number one, trials are inevitable even for the faithful. Trials are inevitable even for the faithful. And that's what Peter kind of implicitly here is saying that God's using these things even in the lives of the faithful. These elect exiles are not immune from trials, and you and I are not immune from the trials of life, whether they're tragedies, whether they're job circumstances, relational circumstances, whatever kind of trials they are, we're not immune from them. In fact, I quoted this in previous weeks, but 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And there again, you see this language of God testing us through trial. And let me remind us that he's, he's testing us as a father, okay? He's testing us as a good father, but he is testing us and changing us through these trials, even for us as Christians, tested 
by fire, put through crucibles, chiseled by the gracious hand of God. And it is a lie from the pit of hell that says, as a believer, if you're just a Christian, life will go better because now you have Jesus. That is a lie from the pit of hell. In fact, the New Testament would teach us that in some cases, life can actually get more difficult because you're a believer in Jesus. And that's specifically what Peter's preparing his readers to face, is these trials that come In fact, because of their faith, they're going to get more persecution. They're going to have more trials because of their faith. They're not exempt from it. As Jesus himself, John 16, 33, says, In this world you will have tribulation. It's guaranteed. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Because you're a believer now, you actually have more enemies in the world than you did before you were a Christian. Before you were a Christian, you were at odds with God. The Bible says you were at enmity with God. But now that you've become a Christian, you have three primary enemies. And the scripture says their primary enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world system, your own kind of fleshly evil desires, and this adversary, the devil, who Peter says prowls around trying to devour us. So you have more enemies now than you did before, but thankfully we have an advocate and we have protection and we have a God more powerful on all those things who is helping us through these trials, getting us through these trials. But we are tested. In fact, another crazy verse, you might want to look up uh, this later if you don't believe me, but Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus, even though Jesus was perfect, he was a son, he was made perfect through suffering. Now think about that for a second. Try to get that to square in your theology. That here's Jesus, the Son of God, totally perfect, but Hebrews 5.8 says he was perfected. Somehow Jesus... God in flesh, God in humanity was perfected through suffering. Jesus had to go through suffering to be the perfect high priest, to be the perfect Savior. And we follow in the footsteps of Jesus these trials, these crucibles that you and I are in, no matter the temperature, no matter the seriousness, are things that he's testing our faith and making us Not stronger in ourselves, but stronger in our faith, more dependent upon Jesus. Okay? Point number two. Not only are trials inevitable, even for the faithful, but they also, trials also reveal authentic faith. They they reveal authentic faith as opposed to temporary faith or the facade. Of faith. Okay, look again at verse 7. The word there is the tested genuineness of your faith. There's authentic faith, and then apparently there's inauthentic faith. There's faith that looks like faith for a moment or for a season, but that in actuality, when tested, 
and then when revealed at the revelation of Jesus, turns out to not be true faith. That's what Peter is expounding on here, that our, te- our faith is tested, proven, or shown to be real faith through the trials. And so the illustration here is of, of gold, right, that's placed in the, the purging fire and the dross or all the impurities rise to the surface and have been sledged off so that what is pure remains. And that's what these t- trials, these tests of faith are doing. They're bringing the true faith to the service, and they're kind of scraping off the parts of our faith that uh, are inauthentic uh, or are getting in the way of true trust, or in some cases are revealing that we're not true believers when all is said and done. So this is kind of what uh, Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 4. If you want to flip there quickly, you can. But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells this parable that many of you will remember of the seed that's sown, right? And he says that the seed is the word of God. And there's four different places where the, the seed is sown and some of it falls on the path. And it springs up, or I'm sorry, it doesn't spring up, but it's taken away. It never takes root the seed that's thrown along the path. And then some seed is thrown on the, on the rocky soil, right? And it springs up for just briefly, but because it doesn't have any root, it falls away and doesn't develop, right? And then the third is sown among the thorns, and it describes that seed as being choked out by the cares of this world and the worries of life and the desire for other things, right? Choke out that seed. And then finally, you have this fourth kind of soil, which is the good soil where the seed is planted and it grows. And Jesus is using that parable, I think, to show that not everything that kind of starts out looking like life is really, or starts out looking like faith, is really, turns out to be it turns out really to not be true faith. It was spurious, temporary, but not true faith. And Peter's adding to Jesus' teaching here in Mark chapter 4 by saying that these trials, they test or they show the genuineness of faith. So you go through these trials and you find that your faith either falters or your faith grows deeper still through the trials. It's interesting, this same kind of idea shows up parallel if you flip a few pages to the left in your Bible, uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And James also says he's writing to these dispersed believers around the Asian world, but verses 2 through 4, look at the way he describes trials, the very beginning of James' letter. He says, verse 2, "'Count it all joy, my brothers,' When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's amazing to me how similar that those verses are to 1 Peter chapter 1, James chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 1. I don't know about you, but my first reaction when trials come is not joy. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. But he says there's a result. There's a work that these trials are doing and your perseverance through these trials are doing. And, and that result is steadfastness or continued faith. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that your faith grows and that your faith is perfected through the tests. Okay? Tests reveal authentic faith. Thirdly, uh, right here from verse 7, thirdly, tests demonstrate the value of faith. Or after I created these slides, I actually wish I would have changed that. Instead of saying demonstrate the value of faith, maybe a better way to say it would be underscore the value of faith. Okay? Trials underscore the value of faith. You notice here that he says that, these, that the faith is more precious than gold. That's the value of faith. Our faith is more precious than gold. Gold, though great... Money, though great, can't save us in the ER. Can't save us from things that we're so out of control, so powerless uh, about. Probably some of you have seen this kind of popular meme going around on social media that shows uh, Steve Jobs lately. And he's on, have you seen this? And he's on uh, crutches. And he's being helped to walk. And the meme goes on with supposedly Steve Jobs' own words saying, basically, being a billionaire doesn't do you any good when you face what I face. You're powerless. And that's what Peter is saying here, that, that when you go through something where death is staring you in the face. The preciousness that you need is, is not anything that gold can, can do for you, but it's only what faith can do for you, that you have the promise that Jesus is waiting for me at death's door. Now, whatever is ahead of me on the other side, I can face it because I have a faith in Jesus that's strong. And that is way more helpful way more necessary than millions or billions of dollars to be able to face death in the face with confidence knowing Jesus. In fact, it's this very kind of conquering faith. First John talks about, if you want to flip again over to the right side this time, First John 5, 4, don't have a slide of this, sorry, but had to throw this in here. First John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What overcomes the world? Those who have been born of God, those of faith. And what's really precious in trials is not our bank account, is not the connections we have or the resources we may have, but the precious faith that can sustain us even tested through trial. So when we face the worst of trials, we have that precious faith. So, again, trials are inevitable. 
Trials reveal authentic faith. Trials underscore the value of faith. And then fourthly, trials result in reward for the faithful. We maintain our faith. We stay steadfast through trials. And Peter has this reward, this promise of reward for us. That may be found... Excuse me, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You go through this trial, you face this test, and Peter says it, you're, it's going to result in praise and glory and honor. Now, the commentators say that this is probably not only the praise and glory of Jesus when we get there, but there's, this is also speaks of, of reward for the believer who has endured through test and trial, that, th- that there will be rewards for us. We will be praised, we will be commended, we will be honored by God himself for our steadfastness through trial. So for Christians, we have... No fear of losing our salvation, but we do have this judgment that awaits us. 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 talk about these judgments for believers. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment for rewards. It's a, it's a, it's a banquet in which those have been faithful get rewarded with crowns and ribbons for faithfulness through trials. That's what Peter is saying here. If you endure, if you stay steadfast through trial, God will reward us. Back to James chapter 1, verse 12. He says the same thing here. Blessed is the man. This is James 1:12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. If you stay the course, if we remain steadfast, not only will our faith grow, not only will our strength in Christ grow, but we will be rewarded. We will be honored before the judgment seat of Christ because we have maintained and remain steadfast in our faith. So here's, uh, this is kind of heavy, isn't it? And I can see it on some of your faces this morning, okay? And I know, as I just scan the audience this morning, I know some of your trials. And they're not light, They're various, but many of them are not light. And this is why last week I didn't feel led to sit on this verse last week because of the trials that some were going through. Here's here's the good news, okay? Because, I mean, raise your hand if you want to go through trials. (laughs) I don't, you know. I just don't. 
But we do grow, do we not, through pain? We do. When stretched, when pressed, when under strain, we grow, our faith grows through strain. But this is heavy. But here's the good news. Brothers and sisters, if you are a brother and sister here this morning, here's the good news. These trials are not the punishment of God. They are not the punishment of God. They may be tests from a good father, but you are not being punished for something that you did last week, last year, with your kids, to your kids. That's not the way God works. In fact, his grace has covered all of your mistakes. So this is not karma, okay, where you do something bad and then God swoops in and gives you a trial by which to beat you down and know that you screwed up. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. It is a broken world and things are messed up. And God puts us through tests, but it's not as a judge or a mean, uh, punishing God. Because here's, here's how we know. Here's how we know it's not punishment. Because the good news of this scripture is that Jesus bore the punishment. The judgment, the punishment that I deserve and the punishment that you deserve, it happened. It happened. But it was put on Jesus' shoulders, not your shoulders and not my shoulders. So here's the good news for brothers and sisters in Jesus, is no matter what trial you're going through, it is not karma from God. It is not retributive Retributionary, I'm not sure the right form of that word. Sorry, I should have figured that out. But it is not retribution from God because all the punishment, all the pain that we rightly deserve was placed upon Jesus. And as we come to this table in a few minutes, we're reminded that Jesus bore it all. So let us, let me, let us all rid ourselves of this kind of karma-like sense of, oh, maybe the report came because of what something I did. That's not the God revealed to us in the Scriptures. So the good news is, tests come. I mean, that's the bad news. I'm sorry. The bad news is, tests come. But the good news is, punishment has been put on Jesus. Not to be put back on us. This is not double jeopardy. This is not us having to pay. Jesus pays for our sins once, but he didn't quite get it all, so now you have to pay for your sins. That's not the good news. The good news is, though tests and trials come, Jesus paid it all. He took it all upon the cross. And while the test and the trial is painful, he is purifying us, transforming us, chiseling us through the pain. 
but he is not punishing us through the pain. Thanks be to God. I want to leave you this morning with some words. I can't say it better than this Puritan of old Samuel Rutherford. So I want to read this and I want to pray for us and then we'll celebrate the table, okay? Listen to these words. Brothers and sisters, if your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed, for he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among thorns. You cannot be above your master who received many an innocent stroke. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. A pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You can't sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for glory. But as we look back to our pains and sufferings, we shall see that suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and ask that you might increase our faith in the midst of trials and storms. Pray, Father God, that you would find us faithful in the furnace, faithful in the trialing and trial and testing that comes our way. Pray, God, that you would purify and refine us that our love for you would grow, our reliance upon you would grow as we face trials of various kinds. And God, we thank you this morning that you have saved us from the fire of punishment, that you are not striking us with retribution, Because your son took all pain and punishment on our behalf on that cross 2,000 years ago. So that we can rest assured that you love us and all payment, all debt, all punishment has been paid through the blood of Jesus that was more than sufficient for our weakness, failings, selfishness, and sin. Oh God, thank you for that good news we're your sons and daughters, that you love us as a good father, that you're training us, you're transforming us, that you will not punish us forever. You will bring us to glory where we will look upon Jesus face to face. It's in his beautiful name that we pray.
as we come to the table this morning, let us be reminded also of the privilege that we have this morning and in our day to celebrate and to know what we know of Jesus portion of scripture that I didn't get to this morning, uh, verses 10, verses 10 through 12, talk about the prophets and the angels. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about prophets and angels, but when I think about prophets and angels, I mean, those are some pretty, pretty big time people in the Bible, right? And the prophets, these are the guys who are the word of the Lord and high responsibility and heard from God and God used them and then you think about angels and just the power of angels and the beauty and this their prominence in the heavens and who they are well guess what Peter tells us in verses 10 through 12 that we're in a better spot than the prophets and the angels you know why because we get to come to this table because we get to sit where we do in fact he says that the prophets didn't really know what they were writing about or what they were prophesying. They didn't know how Jesus was going to come. They didn't know how the suffering and glories would work out. That they came to serve us. They came as servants of us. And then it also ends, verse 12, by saying, these are things that angels long to look into. Salvation. This morning, as we come to the table, reminded that Jesus is not punishing us because he took our punishment, we're also reminded that on this side of the cross, on this side of salvation history, all that the prophets foretold was for us. And this salvation that we enjoy is for us. See, Jesus didn't go to the cross and bleed for angels. He bled for humans. He bled for you and me. So we come to the table this morning in a greater position than even prophets and angels because Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died the perfect death for you and for me. So let me read this passage. I want to invite our servers to go ahead and come forward take the elements hear the word of the Lord for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, remember, come, and celebrate.